I want to welcome everyone to this week's ICJ Weekly Webinar. Thanks for joining us from all over the world. And uh, we've got a, the topic that we dealt with last week, also a couple weeks ago. It's been like the dominating the headlines here in Israel, uh, this heated debate in Israel over judicial reform. Some are calling it an overhaul. Uh, some even calling it a push or a coup. And uh, it's uh, really gotten emotional on, on both sides of the divide. And today, to help us uh, understand what's going on further, help us get perspective and uh, keep us uh, informed, we have Haviv uh, uh, Retik Gur. He's a senior analyst with the Times of Israel, first time guest uh, for the embassy. And Aviv, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, Habib has been very informative, very good in, in uh, helping us understand. If you follow the Times of Israel, their website run by David, uh, he's the editor-in-chief, David Horowitz. I used to work with him for around seven years when I was co-editor of the Jerusalem Post Christian Edition when he was chief editor-in-chief of J Post. The Times of Israel is now just this excellent a resource for Christians as well as everyone else around the world for keeping up with with Israel. And Aviv, we, we've been covering this in a couple of recent uh, webinars, the, the judicial reforms, and I've even had staff members and other people writing to us and saying, I still don't know what these reforms are about. And so I just want to take a minute to give a, a little background. I have a legal background Myself, we could really get into the the details and the um, uh, into the the weeds a bit, but uh, just for a big picture perspective or historic perspective, uh, if you are a liberal Western democracy today, uh, you think that our system of government was inspired by the Greeks and the Romans, uh, when in fact the Roman Senate did what they wanted and as they went along, set their own rules. But the, it was actually uh, Israel, the Israelites, and, and what happened at Sinai, which is the model for Western democracies today. And we see this in one scripture in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22. says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. And the whole notion that that everyone, including the king, the ruler, is subject to a higher law, uh, and what we now consider constitutions, which which come from the people, but say that no one can just do whatever they want. There's accountability and such. Uh, this uh, is from uh, uh, it has Hebraic roots at Sinai. And here we have this verse that says, look, the Lord is our judge, you have a judiciary, the Lord is our lawgiver, you have a legislature, and the Lord is our king, you have an executive. So even in the Hebrew scriptures, you have this notion, say in America, where the U.S. Constitution divided up those three branches of government and set up checks and balances between them. The legislature enacts laws, the executive branch, uh, they enforce and execute the law, and the judicial branch, they interpret and apply the law. Of course, in ancient Israel, you had these judges that were set up to help Moses deal with 
This was even in the wilderness at Sinai to help deal with all the disputes that came up between peoples. Uh, and Israel follows more a British model. Uh, the Britain has a constitutional monarchy where the king still has certain powers, but the, the House of Commons and a coalition government comes out of it. And uh, then you have the judicial system. Israel, the legislature and the executive, the, the lawgivers and the king are sort of one branch set off against the judiciary. There's no constitution in Israel. Aviv, maybe you can explain first why that is the case. And therefore, there's no real set checks and balances uh, between the judiciary and the legislative executive. And there's been this tug of war that's intensified in recent decades. Who really has the last say on things? So can you pick it up? How did we get here? How did this develop? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Um, first of all, I love I love that setup for the conversation because it's it's really true. Uh, the Roman state was built uh, out of a trauma of the uh, of, of of what Rome remembered as very very tyrannical kings, and so they would have the Senate would rule instead of kings, and they would appoint two consuls at a time for the to rule the Roman state, limited to one year. There were all these all these checks, but ultimately, even though there were tribunes and there was there were elections inside the city of Rome. Ultimately, it was an oligarchy where the Senate ruled. In Athens, you had, uh, I just have to respond because it's so interesting, in Athens, you had a, a democracy in some places at some times, but of course, half the population were slaves and women weren't part of the democracy in any case. Um, and, and, and in the Bible, you have um, prophets everywhere. Every time there's a prophet, what a prophet is, is that moral voice standing against the king and calling the king to task. And, uh, and in the Bible, at the very beginning, the very first thing the Bible tells us about ourselves is that each and every single one of us is in the image of God. And so um, I think the Hebraic contribution is, is, the, is individual value and worth and rights, which did not exist even in the most democratic of Roman or, or, or Greek moments. Um, and so they taught us a little bit about institutions, and we taught them about the human is how I see it, which is an okay division in my book. Um, Right now in Israel, uh, that divide is a little bit of the debate that we're having. That, that divide really does frame it well. Israel has probably the simplest uh, system of governance in the world. It has almost no institutions. It has a, a parliament that is elected by a single constituency. The entire country is one constituency. No member of Knesset is elected from any region of the country. And so no member of Knesset really stands on their own feet. We don't vote for the actual members. We vote for parties. And the party chooses the list of members that actually sits in the parliament. In the vast majority of cases in the Israeli Knesset, those political parties don't even have primaries. Uh, in uh, Yair Lapid's Yashatid list, or in um, the Israel Beitenu list, or in, you know, I, I don't think our listeners need to necessarily know each and every party, but if you look them up on Wikipedia, you'll find each and every party and, and very, very few have primaries. And even those that do have primaries, where an actual member is voted, elected by someone, someone at some point, uh, like Likud. Likud is the big one, Benjamin Netanyahu's party. In practice, there's almost no real contest. It really is a list chosen by Netanyahu. And so we have a, a parliament from which a government is selected, like in other parliamentary systems, Britain or, I don't know, Austria or Latvia or others. 
Um, the parliament vo elects the government from within itself. The prime minister, by law, has to be a member of, of the Knesset. And those leaders of those political parties who sit in the government, who are the executive branch, appointed the vast majority of the members of the legislature. And so the legislature can't, you know, the United States, the president can want something, but if he doesn't have the House, he doesn't have the budget. And if he doesn't have the Senate, he can't go to war, right? And so there are these profound limits and, and, and on every piece of legislation. And that does not exist here. We have almost no checks and balances in our system of any kind. Members of parliament are very, very weak institutions. And, uh, and our government is almost can't, almost can't be reined in by definition because a government exists with a majority in the Knesset. And so by, if it's the government, it already has that majority. Long story short, because we have no real checks in the system, over the decades, they're developed in this country piece by piece with each little judicial decision after another, uh, and, and with especially over the last 30 years. Probably the most powerful Supreme Court in the world, in the democratic world. I guess in the non-democratic world, it doesn't matter, right? Uh, in the democratic world. We have a court that on issues, if, if any listener is a lawyer, on issues of standing, in other words, who can actually come to the court to complain about something the government is doing or something that, you know, they feel needs to be redressed on justiceability? What issues are actually addressable by legal means in a court? A court should not decide welfare policy. It's not equipped to decide welfare policy. The people are given are the ability to vote for representatives, and those representatives then decide what to do with the people's money. If the court starts writing up state budgets, that's that's a bad system. In in the Israeli case, in terms of standing and justiceability and the court's willingness to intervene, even on very, very political and policy questions, uh, it is an outlier in the democratic world. It is the most powerful court. Many of these powers it took for itself. They're not written down in any law. And it just rules on decisions, um, you know, based on whether it thinks something is reasonable or it thinks something is... So th this in without when you say uh, when you say standing and justiciability, those are two different issues for people to underst understand that if the Supreme Court is ruling on whether the uh, prime minister can appoint so and so as defense minister, the courts have been saying no, that's unreasonable, and they should be poking their nose. That's not a, a just justiciable issue where a court should be dealing with that. And standing is whether I, as an individual, have a right to go to a court and say the prime minister is doing something wrong. Do I have any stake in it? How's it going to impact me? And that's gotten very watered down and blurry where any citizen over the past couple of decades in Israel can just say, I don't like the prime minister. He's not doing it right. And the Supreme Court can hear the case, even though he may not have any dog in the fight at, at right. the end of the Right. And, and in the American court system and in the British court system and in the German court system, those are very powerful limits. You cannot just personally randomly be in, you know, you, I don't know what, you're a resident of Maryland and be just deeply insulted by some some policy enacted in Nebraska and turn to the Israeli, to, excuse me, to the American Supreme Court to try and tell Nebraska what to do. Yes. Uh, and and uh, unless you're literally a party in an interstate commerce case, right? But imagine you have no connection. You can't just... In Israel, you can, and there are NGOs that do a brisk business uh, in that. They appeal to the Supreme Court, uh, it, the appeals to the Supreme Court, quote, going to the hundreds and, and sometimes thousands uh, per year on these questions. And so it's, it's, 
it's part of our system of government and it's not really based in in law uh certainly not the way the the the, the issues the court has tackled the court has for 30 years now been telling the government um that it can and cannot appoint um, members of other of political parties to the cabinet, for example, whether the prime minister is allowed or not allowed to appoint a minister, uh, even when the court itself, in its ruling, says that the minister that the prime minister behaved correctly within the bounds of the law, but appointing this person who faces an indictment or is past in his past you know years has has a conviction against him on corruption charges, that appointment would so hurt public faith in government. That it's unreasonable. Now, that is a decision for politicians and for the public. And if the public faith is, you know, there there are elections uh, in which public faith in government is sorted out, right? So um, we've had this massive expansion of the court's powers, and incidentally, not just on technical issues. It's not philosophical or academic. One of the most important questions for um, the very essence of, for example, the Haredi or ultra orthodox community in Israel is whether the uh, military draft can be applied to young Haredi men. In the view of that community, uh, military service would would pull them out of their studies, uh, open them up to all kinds of moral hazards that they think would be terribly damaging to their community, to their lifestyle, to their religious beliefs. And the court and the Knesset has produced over the years, I, I believe, five different agreed upon with majority vote pieces of legislation that sort out who and when and how you know people will be drafted so that the ultra-Orthodox community doesn't face that that problem that it feels is existential. And each one the court has thrown out on um, essentially on the grounds of equality. I have to say, just full disclosure, I happen to think the court's arguments were good, and I happen to think that um, the whole issue of the ultra-Orthodox participating in the workforce, there's very low participation in the workforce. They live off the wealth, many, many of them, too many of yeah. them, live off the welfare system and don't serve. You don't have to go to the military. You can create ultra-Orthodox uh, national service programs uh, in uh, rescue services and, and, and in other places. I served in the military. My father served in the military. My brothers, my uncles, my children will serve in the military. And I feel that that is an imbalance. And I am on the liberal side of that particular question. But it creates among the ultra-Orthodox electorate and politicians a sense that the court, not only is it very powerful, but that that massive power deeply and profoundly and in their most important issues, um, you know, hurts them and limits them. And so the the feeling on, on, on the side opposed to the court is, is the feelings are really very, very powerful. And, and that brings us to, to this reform. So this reform has... Uh, you know, like 11 moving parts. If people are confused, that's a good thing. Israelis are confused and they're reading it in the original Hebrew. Um, but I want to single out three pieces of those many, many parts, all of which are different pieces of legislation and it's all very complex. The three pieces that I think um, summarize the whole. One, and by the way, not just I will not just explain wh why they want to do it, but how each piece is a deep, is a, is a profound problem for opponents and why people are not crazy in thinking this is a serious attack on Israeli democracy. Even if it's very reasonable to limit the court, the way it's being done is being interpreted as an attack on Israeli democracy, and that's not a crazy opinion. Um, the court, uh, the, the, the legislation, this reform, one of the things that it does is it um, allows the government to have a majority 
on judicial appointments. In other words, there's a judicial appointments committee. Uh, today, uh, you need seven out of nine votes on that committee to appoint a Supreme Court justice. And the Supreme Court itself has three justices on the committee. And so if you do the math, without at least one Supreme Court justice, you cannot appoint someone to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court's delegation, those three justices on that nine-member committee, have never voted apart in thousands of votes over the last 20 years on appointments, or many hundreds, on appointments of judges at all levels of Israeli uh, of the Israeli courts. And so, in effect, the Supreme Court can, if it chooses to, have a veto. Now, the government also has four mem uh, three members of the coalition, really, and usually four. We don't need to get into the technicalities, but basically you have uh, a mutual veto between the government and the court on that committee. And they have to negotiate out, right? So you have some more conservative members when there is a conservative government, more liberal members when there's a more liberal government. But the, the, the argument is that it's unreasonable. You know, in the United States, right, you have a court that is entirely appointed by politicians. Now, two institutions, the president and the Senate, but still all elected, right? Imagine if the Supreme Court had a veto on appointments to the Supreme Court, right? That, that would be very dramatic change in the system of government. Mm -hmm. um, and so what they want to do is they want to say, you know, we're going to allow the government to have that majority now alone. Mm -hmm. Now, given what we said at the beginning, the Knesset and the government can't really balance each other out. You're essentially handing the prime minister just literally an appointment, just the ability to simply appoint the Supreme Court. I mean, just literally appoint it without any checks and any balances um, uh, of any other institutions. Um, they want to pass an override clause. An override clause means that if the Supreme Court rules that some piece of legislation is unconstitutional, uh, or extremely unreasonable, or any of those rulings, then the Knesset can decide that, in fact, it is constitutional, and it is kosher, and you can pass it into law. And the majority you need to overcome that Supreme Court ruling in the proposal that they have offered in the Knesset, and that has already advanced the first of its three readings, that majority is 61 seats. That's 61 out of 120. That's in other words... A simple majority, a simple majority that, by definition, the government already has, and so essentially, this override clause isn't saying, you know, if if the president vetoes something, you need two thirds of the House and Senate. It's yes. not saying that. It's saying if the president vetoes something, just vote on it again, right? It's one more little vote. It's it it makes the Supreme Court just the tiniest. It's a single day or two day delay is all it can do. Um, they want to, and the third thing is the basic laws. Israel has a series of basic laws whose status isn't entirely certain. The Supreme Court has seen these basic laws as essentially a proto-constitution and has thrown out other laws if they contradicted the basic laws. But the basic laws are passed, most of them, with simple majorities. And there are 21 of them. A lot of them organize the system of government, how the Knesset works, how the government works. Um, but um, they, they, they can be passed and they can be overturned with simple majorities um, in the Knesset. And so are they a constitution if you can change them at will? Um, what they want to do is they want to say that this, the basic laws are immune to judicial review. In other words, the court will not be able to throw out, to rule a basic law unconstitutional. But they don't want to make them hard to change. In other words, they want to give them the status of a base. Any law that the Knesset slaps the words basic law on will become not subject to judicial review. And that's a judicial review you can overcome with a simple majority anyway. And that's after you've stacked the court because the prime minister can just essentially appoint with that new committee. 
And so, uh, you know, I happen to think that it's a great idea, an important idea, to make the basic laws immune to judicial review. It gives us a constitution. But those basic laws, it's not theoretical that the Knesset will change them at will just to avoid judicial review. Basic laws of Israel have been changed 22 times in the last five years, which means the Knesset doesn't treat them as a constitution, but wants the court to treat them as a constitution. So we have a, and, and again, there's mo many, many, many more elements to this, including requiring 12 or 13 justices out of 15 to even to even sit on the question of, of, of reviewing, right? A huge majority would be required for the court to even throw out legislation, which it, the Knesset could then completely ignore, right? So um, in practice, when you dig down into the details, this, this reform essentially completely neutralizes the Israeli high court, totally. And the problem with that is that we have nothing else. As, as one uh, very uh, smart legal editor of uh, one Israeli newspaper put it, we in Israel, um, in general, in the democratic world, there is a negative correlation between how powerful a court is and how much control politicians have, elected politicians, over appointments. So the American Supreme Court is fairly powerful. It can throw out legislation. It, it's got quite a bit of power. And so um, it's appointed by representatives of the people as a way to rein in that power over time. The British court has much less power. It really can't throw out legislation almost at all. Over the last 10 years, it's done a little bit around the edges, but it basically doesn't have the power of judicial review in that sense. And it is almost, it, there's a complicated process through the Justice Ministry of Britain, but basically it is essentially a professional appointment process and not a political one. The weaker the court, the more independent it is. The more powerful a court, the more the appointment process is given to elected representatives. Israel until today has been a complete anomaly, an outlier. It has been an extraordinarily powerful court, maybe the most powerful in the free world, and with almost a veto on its own appointments, all incredibly independent, independent and very powerful. And this reform makes it an outlier in the other extreme. Mm. It would be a court with no power, really, and also completely dependent on not just the political echelon as a whole, but really just the majority leader of the of the parliament or of the, of the government. And so the, 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 the part of Israel that says this court is authoritarian, it's too powerful, it has a veto on its own appointments, it's a huge problem. They've got a case, and the part of Israel that says this is the end of democracy, the sky is falling, that's not hysteria. They're looking for what else might be there when the dust settles and seeing nothing. And the defenders of the reform keep talking about the problematic court, which, yeah, but that's not an answer to the question being asked, which is how, how, will you, how do you leave us with, with nothing? The, the, the proponents of the reform have even been asked by people, myself included, you know, just as a sign of your democratic intentions, pass a bill that includes a bunch of rights, a, a bill of rights, simple rights, not contested rights, the conservative- There's no right of free speech in Israel. There's no right of free speech. We don't have a bill of rights. We have free speech. Very difficult to shut up Israelis, as, as you're discovering in this conversation. I'll shut up in a second, but, but just write it down somewhere in law. Now, that's not a significant constitutional change, but it's a signal of intent, and they've refused. And the other, the other sign is slow down. What's the rush? 
put a freeze on it to, so that we can find some compromises here. And I think because this situation Israel's in, there's no document that you can really turn to 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 regulate how to even resolve this dispute. You've had this this several decades of overreach and power grab by the judiciary, and now this government that finally came in very right of center after so many uh, 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 deadlocked elections. Now they're coming in and trying to overreach the other way to grab power back for the Knesset. And it, uh, there's a compromise in the middle that's just begging for everyone to come to it where where you set certain, you know, if you want to pass a basic law, it has to have a supermajority. If you want to appoint uh, j- uh, judges, you have to have some sort of mechanism that you're always finding compromise candidates or consensus candidates. And it's sitting there, uh, but the government, how many of these three areas you're talking, the main areas of the basic laws, the override and the appointments committee, They've, uh, they've passed first reading, they need two more readings, and the current government says we want to pass it all before Passover, which is only two and a half weeks or so away. Right. They'll pass some, they can, if they want, pass some of these pieces. Each actual element is at a different stage. Uh, and right now, today, they're spending a lot of time, you know, the thing we didn't talk about is, um, is everything happening around it, the context. All these bills that Netanyahu is pushing through uh, to enable him to receive gifts from family members, uh, and um, and uh, the bill of unity, he wouldn't have to recuse himself. Yeah, right. Which which is a reasonable again debate and a reasonable you know position. Make a prime minister not have to recuse himself from things, and also make a prime minister immune for the duration of his term to prosecution. Which but is what we have in the in the U.S. with the president. He has a certain right. limited immunity as president. Right, the and in France, complete. Yeah, right. the only way to remove is not through the Supreme Court, but the the an impeachment process. But as I understand it, every place that does have a kind of immunity for the head of state, which makes sense because the head of state should be focused on running the state, yeah. also has term limits, and Israel doesn't have term limits. And so, you know, again, it's this thing where they're they're saying something reasonable and then passing this thing that helps them massively and doesn't have any limits on power. And so they're they're doing it in a way that convinces the other half of the country that it really is ultimately authoritarian. But um, it, several of these elements have already passed. The, you need three votes in the Knesset to pass it into law. Several of these elements have passed uh, a first vote. Uh, in the most, you know, egregious and and problematic, you know, when you when you pin down some of the authors, some of the right wing think tanks in this country that actually produce this legislation, you 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 go to their conferences and you say to them, wait a second, you actually think the basic law should be immune, but also easy to change? You actually think that uh, you know the override should be sixty one? You 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 believe this? Every single one of them will tell you, absolutely not, absolutely not. It's an extreme opening position. They were meant to negotiate, but then the half of the, the liberal half of the country, the center left of the country, was so horrified and became so convinced this is a war on democracy mm-hmm. uh, that they won't even negotiate. Right yeah. to which I said, "Well, you know, you guys just—I mean, you introduced a bill that cancels the last check and balance we have in the system. Well, what did you? Right, this is—you were being very, very clever, but the hubris of thinking that you could push forward something so 
that you yourself now argue is unreasonable and, and dangerous. You're so talking, a place where uh, it's on the covalent policy forum. Not uh, just, but they're the big one, yeah. They're, they're the big one. I, I, this is Eugene Kontorovich, Avi Bell. We've been engaged with them. We've had them speak at our events. We like those guys. They do a good job of defending Israel abroad from lawfare and things like this, but this uh, they've been part of uh, some of these suggested reforms, but they they have they say they now, I think uh, Times of Israel was reporting that they now say we have a compromise package. Is it being considered? The president has really been spearheading the effort to compromise. President Isaac Herzog. And he has met with all of these different people. It's very, you know, but um, the, the I, I want to just clarify, the mem- members of the civil society, whether it's Kohelet on the right or the Israel Democracy Institute on the, what they call center left, um, they're not at fault for any of this. They are, you know, I, I know them and I have learned from them over the years on both sides and quoted them extensively in my articles. They are thinkers and they are planners and they are experts. And they are not the reason that this political system is engaging in this issue in the way, in the in the just deeply toxic and poisonous way that it's engaging in it. Um, I, I just that's important for me to say because th- there is a habit now among opponents of the reform to try and pin it on Kohelet. It's a think tank. A lot of its funding comes from overseas. By the way, that's true of a great deal of the Israeli left civil society. It's true of a great deal of the Israeli right civil society. Maybe we should cancel all overseas funding for everything, but we certainly shouldn't be worried about it only when, you know, on on one side. Um, but but these are people also who have been talking about these issues for 20 years. And, and, um, and the problem, the people who refuse to negotiate uh, are are the people in the Knesset, and they're, and they're the ones with the responsibility. And so I refuse to take away their responsibility by pretending the problem is outside think tanks. Um, so basically, um, uh, you know, I, 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 there is this compromise effort by the president. The compromise is possible. I'll say more than possible. I share the criticism of the court. I share it because some of the, my teachers over the years on the left, people like uh, a former professor of law, she's now passed away, Ruth Gabizon, one of the great legal scholars of this country over the last few decades, um, a former, uh, really a progressive liberal, one of the founders of the Association for Civil Liberties in Israel, which is a little bit modeled on the American ACLU. Um, she thought that the court had just gone way out of bounds and become activist to the point that's not healthy for liberal causes, never mind conservative causes. And she'd argued this for years and years and years. And because she was opposed to judicial activism, even though she was on every substantive issue, deeply a progressive, um, the court itself, Aaron Barak, the former chief justice, refused to veto her appointment to the court, even when the government actually proposed her as a candidate. By the way, a a right-wing government proposed her as a candidate, as a kind of compromise candidate. A liberal judge who isn't an activist was a compromise between left and right, and they vetoed it, uh, the court itself vetoed it. And so she uh, has taught me many of the issues surrounding the court, and I want the court reined in. But but I want the court reined in in a way that gives us more checks, more rights, not less. And so the compromise, a compromise that says, look, Let's make basic laws immune to judicial re- review. Yes, let's have a constitution, but then make them very hard to change. Let's have an override at 75. 
what does that mean at 75? It means, I don't think, I don't, it, if there's ever been a government, a, a majority coalition with more than 75, I, I can't think of it right now. It's very, very rare if it ever even happened. But what it means is that if the court rules something out, the Knesset can come back and say, no, no, we really want this. But you have to go to the opposition and you have to have the opposition with the coalition and then come to the court and say, I'm sorry, too much of the public wants this. By the way, maybe give the president a veto. The Israeli president right now is basically a figurehead. He's elected to seven-year terms by the Knesset, which means that he's a representative in an important sense of seven years ago's Knesset, right? It's a little bit like the Senate. is they're, They go in for six-year terms so that they're the cool heads, right? That's why they're the ones allowed in America to declare war, so that America doesn't declare war. Because populist feeling might declare wars that calm people who aren't facing re-election tomorrow morning would not declare. And and so why not give seven years ago's Knesset a veto over today's Knesset, uh, it, just as a way to slow things down? Not not that this wouldn't prevent a majority view over time of winning out, but it would slow it down and it would protect rights that way. There are all these solutions that if you incorporate them, and this is the beautiful part, we're not just a step away from a compromise. We're a step away from a much stronger democracy than we were going into this mess. Give me more institutions, more checks, weaken the courts so that it's a healthier court. Don't destroy it, don't remove it, but make it something a lot more reasonable in this sort of the democratic world. And then give me many, many more checks and protections and rights listed on paper. You know, it, we're a country that 75 years ago when it was founded was, was very chaotic and very small and very weak and didn't really have time or desire. Uh, to sit down and think all these things. We never had a Philadelphia convention. We have no you know, Federalist papers where anybody wrote any of these ideas down. But we're now we're big, we're complex, we're fairly wealthy. I think we have the GDP per capita of New Zealand at the moment. Um, it's time to get a serious constitution. This could be that moment if our politics allow it. Yeah. Some countries, they, they think constitutions, uh, you know, they're uh, they each new government rips up the old and writes a new. They become a throwaway, and it's not a cure-all for everything. But I think Israel needs some sort of document to help it, uh, um, you know, navigate these disputes and this sort of tribalism that has really entrenched itself in Israeli politics. And I think you, uh, for people who are listening, if you go back over the past two months or so. Aviv Retik Gur on the Times of Israel, timesofisrael.com. Uh, you go on his website, he has an excellent article on why it was David Ben-Gurion who said, I don't want a constitution. Then he had an excellent article on why it was Aaron Barak, who became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, started this activism and this overreach uh, from the, the courts and the left, uh, hyperactivism that now the, the right is responding to. Uh, Habib, I think a, a lot of um, the emotion in this, you say they're ready or upset that the courts might uh, send their children off to the army. Uh, a lot on the left, you had several years now of, of these black flag, black flag protests against the crime minister, Netanyahu, because he's under indictment in three different scandals. And now he's trying to ram through uh, some reforms that would he would then be able, if you get this first uh, uh, tier of, of bills passed, uh, then the Knesset could do whatever they want. They could appoint him chancellor for life. <laughs> and, uh, 
uh, I want to be careful with my analogies. Maybe I've worked that differently, but it, this is this, or that that the you know there's another tier of laws waiting, and we've seen one of them as as the Christian Embassy by uh, UTJ MK Moshe Gaffney. He proposed a bill uh, around ninety seven ninety eight that would have made it. Uh, it uh, a criminal offense to possess the New Testament in Israel, very much against Christian missionary activity and such. And he's got another bill waiting that that second tier. I, I think you mentioned it in an article. Yeah, he's a real uh, he's a real liberal. <laughs> in, in in his defense, he uh, his uh, party and and the other ultra orthodox party Shas have proposed things that would do even worse things to other Jews they disagree with. So yeah, yeah, I know there was protests outside his house this week. Right, there was a bill uh, proposed by Shas uh, two weeks ago, and the importance of these bills is not that most of them will pass. And by the way, who the heck knows? Once there's no court, what will pass when they essentially neutralize the court and control everything. The question becomes, would Netanyahu not give the ultra-Orthodox these bills if they threatened to leave his coalition and topple his government? Am I willing to put my rights on on that question, right? So, um, But Shas proposed a bill that would give, um, create a six-year prison sentence for, for immodest dress by women at the Western Wall. Now, who are they talking about? They're talking about liberal Jews. By the way, liberal Israeli Jews. And they're not talking about women running naked through the place. There's already laws against that. They're talking about elbows, and and so and and you know that that sparks such a public outcry, especially overseas. And then it's you know called up Shas and said, "What are you guys doing to me? You're you're, you're making everything look bad, right?" And so they pulled it. But before pulling it, uh, Moshe Bell, the member of Knesset who proposed the bill from the Shas party, said. What do you want from me? This thing is an appendix to our coalition agreement we signed back in December. You know about this. And then Likud, the Yariv Levine, the justice minister, who was Likud's negotiator in the coalition talks, said, oh, that's that's my bad. I didn't notice. Now, that entire situation, every element of that is worse than the previous one. How will this government look when the court is neutralized is not a small question. And it's just big, big right. consequences abroad as well. Um, right. America is sort of crushing this, not only American Jewish establishment organizations, but uh, uh, the U.S. government and, and all through Europe, and it could affect, say, some of the uh, proceedings at the World Court of Justice, the UN Human Rights Commission, the, um, uh, the internet work, because the judiciary does provide a, a certain shield uh, um, for Israel in these international forums. Okay, look, the uh, the Supreme Court sort of poked the bear at the very start. The government was sworn in. The next week or so, they say, Prime Minister Netanyahu, it was extremely unreasonable for you to appoint R.A. Derry, who just pled guilty, a plea bargain on, on uh, tax evasion charges. He can't be Ministry of Interior. Uh, you have to fire him, and that was another example of what they feel is overreach. So now they decided by Passover they're going to get this whole reform package passed. And you, you I, I've, I'm trying to, you know, get a prediction out of you how this is going to play out over the next couple of weeks because some say it was just Netanyahu's bargaining tactic that if if you hung this over their head, that within a couple of weeks we're going to have this passed, 
then they're going to compromise more, the left and those who are trying to, to water down the package. Are we going to see an effort to compromise or will this all be uh, enacted into law before uh, we have our Passover Seder on April 5th? Um, I'll put it this way. Nobody quite knows, and that's an enormous change. Ten years ago, if you had asked me, or five years ago, if you had asked me about Benjamin Netanyahu, about his core, his core ideas, his core commitments, I would have been, I would have staked my career on them being fundamentally liberal, classical liberal, liberal, maybe a conservative version of liberal. Yes. And also utterly patriotic. He might understand what's good for the country differently from other people, and we have elections to sort that out, but complete unquestioned. Today, so much of this legislation is personal. You mentioned the legislation that today was actually uh, being debated in a Knesset committee this morning, um, but in, next door, there's a Knesset committee debating a bill to allow Netanyahu to receive massive gifts to fund his trial. Gifts his defense. From, his defense, his right. Now, um, Netanyahu is a, a multimillionaire. Netanyahu is not a poor man. Netanyahu wants the Knesset to change legislation that allows members of Knesset to receive gifts. Some of the articles in this bill that's going through the Knesset right now to allow donations to politicians are astonishing. There's um, the, the gifts can be anonymous. Uh, many kinds of gifts can be anonymous. Um, the politician uh, appears not to be responsible under this bill for financial improprieties because the money has to be channeled through an NGO and the NGO takes on liability. Um, that's something that's very vague in the bill, and so we don't quite know, but that's what it looks like. Um, the, the, the bill doesn't even require proper accounting. There's no, um, it, it's, it's, it's a huge problem. It also doesn't define, it allows members of parliament to receive donations from, uh, for medical or legal proceedings. Now, legal proceedings is obviously meant for Netanyahu's trial, but it's vague enough to include, uh, libel you know, libel uh, uh, lawsuits. In other words, a politician can essentially fund almost without limit. There are no limits placed on donations in the bill from some billionaire friend or crowdsourcing among the base, um, silencing, li just a campaign of libel lawsuits to silence critics, and nothing in this bill would prevent it or even allow proper tracking of the money, and many of the donors would be anonymous anyway. There's nothing that like be a, That could be a right. That's right now passing through the Knesset, and that is something that, you know, the other problem is there's no debate at all on the right. Likud used to debate. Likud used to be this place where people were screaming and shouting. Uh, Likud primaries had camps, and they fought, and when you went to the Likud primaries, they would always be in these big campgrounds because there were 140,000 yes. people would vote in them, and there'd be people screaming and shouting, you'd have booths, it's like classical, this is, I'm talking 15 years ago. And Sharon went and grabbed the microphone, one of the famous... Exactly, there are these famous moments, it was very colorful and very, very democratic. In the yeah. 90s, uh, bills that the Likud prime minister would want to pass, uh, would be debated loudly in the Knesset, and the people yelling most loudly at each other would be Likud members at other Likud members. 
It was a very democratic party. Today, there isn't a word, a whimper, not a single whisper um, from any Likud MK on any of this, any of this legislation. Not you a little speed. You, Edelstein, is a little uh, in the doghouse right now for not showing up for a vote, but uh, there has been not showing up for a single vote without even publicly denouncing the legislation. Now, Yuli Edelstein isn't a coward. Yuli Edelstein is a man who resisted the Soviet regime, spent three years in the Gulag. Yuli Edelstein is a remarkable man. He's also married to the daughter of a billionaire. Uh, he is also, you know, he doesn't, nobody has any financial <laughs> uh, uh, pressure that they can exert on him. But he faces a very simple political reality, which is that the party is completely controlled by a single person. And that's new. And so we, we are now looking at a Knesset process that, uh, that, that itself is very, very worrying. Can we reach a compromise when Likud itself can't even hold a debate inside itself on these issues? I, I I don't know. And, and would Netanyahu compromise? If the left won't come and sit down and force a compromise, which it doesn't want to because it thinks the whole thing is an authoritarian push in the first place. And nothing this government has done has, con has convinced anyone otherwise. Um, so will Netanyahu compromise with himself to give us a reform we actually need rather than this very dangerous one that even its original authors think now is very dangerous? Kohelet now demands, you know, really desperately wants, doesn't want to be associated with a version of the bills that are advancing now. Uh, I, do, I simply don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. It's easier to predict what a million people will do than what one person will do. And this one person, this Netanyahu, is new. He's a new person. We, this is not the last 15 years of Netanyahu that we've grown to know very well. Yeah. I, I know that uh, some have been waiting for you know something to stir within uh, the Likud. There, there have been press reports that there are uh, quite a few that oppose it. If you have 64 in the government, you only need four or five of these guys to say let's, and it's not to really defy the prime minister, but really help him climb off this limb and say, let's slow this down and have a, uh, a consensus compromise, a broad consensus on some com common sense uh, compromises. Right. That and by the way, they won't pause just for the compromise. They won't pause at the president's request. They, um, it's, it's, yeah, they are making it hard to keep the benefit of the doubt open. And this is a question that, you know, we, we can't afford to get wrong as a country. And so there, there's a level of polarization and, 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 and a politics that uh, even if this could be a good thing, if if there is this compromise that leaves us stronger than before. By the way, that's something President Herzog says, a former head of the Labor Party of the left. Um, this could be a moment that leaves us twice as democratic as we were before, never mind not, you know, not less democratic. Um, but there, there simply doesn't appear to be the political capacity in this government to do that. And so I don't know how to calm the fears of the center left. I, I wish I did. I'm usually an optimist. I, you know, I'm still an optimist in the sense that this is a country with good fundamentals. It'll weather this problem. But this could be a crisis unlike anything we've seen before. President Herzog was taking some heat from the left that he wasn't speaking out more. I took it as a sign that maybe he has a channel open to the prime minister, trying to work out, you know, some avenue, some route for for a compromise to to take place. But he did speak out very forcefully the other day. Finally, 
the first time saying we're headed for a disaster, and maybe that's a sign that that line of communication has broken down. I think it's a sign of death. I, I don't know from the inside, but my interpretation from listening to him is that it's it's a sign of desperation. Okay. Yeah. All right. We need uh, all the Christians out there listening to this, and you, and all the people in your in your churches, in your prayer groups, your Bible studies. Please be praying for Israel right now. It's not total disaster, but this is really uh, my 25 years of living here. I've been visiting Israel for and connected with it for 40 years. This is a very watershed moment. And there is this compromise, a, a common sense compromise that everyone could live with, uh, just waiting there uh, to put the brakes on and, and have a, a little. I've been trying to be careful and objective and all this, but Habib, uh, I think you've given us a good sober assessment of where we are now. So please be praying uh, that Israel can find its way through uh, how to find the balance between the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary branches here of this nation, which, uh, you know, is a, such a miracle. We're about ready not only to ce celebrate the liberation of Passover and individual freedom and the freedom as a nation, but also Israel's 75th anniversary. It's not going to be in a very celebratory mood if the wounds that are uh, and and the tensions right now are just allowed to fester and that nothing happens here that will help healing this. We thank you for your time. You've been very informative, very uh, uh, instructive, helping us to understand where we are. And uh, all the best to you as you continue reporting, Aviv. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. We've been talking to Aviv Retik-Gur, a senior analyst with the Times of Israel, uh, one of the main English news sites out of, of Israel, big, uh, helping us to understand this very tense Israeli standoff right now over the judicial reform package going through the Knesset. And uh, we thank you for tuning in to this week's ICEJ weekly webinar. You want to join us again next Thursday, 4 p.m. Israel time. Uh, we'll be taking up an op another topic. I think right now I'm leaning towards this Iran-Saudi rapprochement, this agreement that they've gone to help mend relations. What's the impact for Israel, the region? Uh, and so we'll be back next week with another hot issue here on the ICJ Weekly Webinar. Uh, and also reminding you next uh, Wednesday, 4 p.m. Israel time, our global prayer gathering come together uh, with the uh, Christian leaders from around the world to pray for Israel, the region, and your nations. So we thank you for joining us. Shalom from Jerusalem.